It is a work of art to serve as an entire lifespan. Mystery endures, a human life can't. Yet somehow through the mystical forces of memory and film, it does. Those are words from director Alan Rudolph on Ingmar Bergman's 1957 film, Wild Strawberries. Seeing Faces in Movies is a podcast where each month I focus on the works of a different director or a cinematographer, and each week I invite the guests on to discuss a film in the artist's filmography. I'm your host, Felicia Maroney, and today we're talking Wild Strawberries. So quick synopsis of the film is, after living a life marked by coldness, an aging professor is forced to confront the emptiness of his existence. The film stars Victor Shostrom as Dr. Isaac Borg, B.B. Anderson as Sarah and the Hitchhiker. Ingrid Doolin as Marion Borg, Gunnar Bjornstrand as Dr. Ewald Borg, and Newland Kindle as Agda. It's written by Ingmar Bergman, cinematography by Gunnar Fischer, directed by Ingmar Bergman, edited by Oscar Rosender, and music by Eric Norgren and Goethe Levin. So today my guest is Aaron Strand. You might remember him, hopefully you remember him from our Double Indemnity episode, which is actually my second episode during my Billy Wilder month. He's also from Behind the Slate podcast, and he just wrapped production on his film Withdrawal. So first, Aaron, thank you so much for coming back on the show, especially with your life being very busy right now. Oh, thank you for having me. It's an honor to be back. I'm thrilled. To get a bit more background and like his love of film, I highly recommend you go listen to Double Indemnity episode if you haven't already. You can get more background there, but I'd love for him to spend some time now just telling me and listeners about, you know, your work on the film, you know, how many details you want to go into, you know, the actual premise of the film, but like what it's like just, you know, making your own film in today's world. Yeah, well, uh, <laughs> it's uh, it's a lot. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, yeah, so I, ju- I just wrap production on uh, what will be my, my first feature film called Withdrawal. And uh, I document the whole process uh, in my own podcast uh, right now. And my, my, my podcast behind the slate is usually a film history podcast where I could do a historical deep dive into the life and work of cinema's greatest directors. But while I was working on this film, while I was in pre-production, I, I did not have the time to do the historical research and also do pre-production on a feature. So I just turned mm-hmm. the podcast into sort of a week by week, you know, um, uh, what it's like to make a feature film. I interviewed a bunch of collaborators. I brought in a bunch of like external artists and guests and just other independent creators that I find really inspiring to kind of see how they do it. And so it kind of became this, uh, you know, the the podcast, honestly, kind of like it it became this sort of wide ranging love letter to independent art, Uh and uh, which is now coming to an end with the production wrapping. And I'll soon get back to the history stuff. But as far as the film goes, I mean, it was an absolute joy. It it is definitely the biggest thing that I've ever done. I've been building up to this moment for the better part of a decade. Mm. Basically, every, every New Year's. Eve. Yeah, I make a silly little uh, resolution that this is the year that I'll get a feature film made. And I've been doing this for 10 years, Felicia. It is depressing. Yeah. It's depressing is what it is. Um, <laughs> I don't know if I would call it depressing, though. You like you actually achieved it. So I, I, yeah, so I well, no, it was depressing until yeah. now. And yeah. now it's exhausting. <laughs> So, uh, you know, so that's the other side of it. No, but we, we, I literally just wrapped production like two days ago, mm-hmm. which is crazy. I, I'm still processing it, obviously. It was um, quite an experience. The shooting was broken up into two shoot periods. So I shot a little bit in August. I shot five days in August, and then I came back and shot for 10 days uh, at the end of October, early November. Yeah, it was incredible. I'll do a whole debrief episode uh, on my own mm-hmm. podcast talking about these last 10 days of shooting because let me tell you, they were hard and they were filled <laughs> with drama and problems and things that there was no way of planning for. And we had to kind of overcome a lot of obstacles in the moment. Uh, everything from like injuries to just, yeah, just like tons of issues um, that we could have never predicted. Uh, so, and that's indie filmmaking. I mean, that's filmmaking yeah. in general, like dealing with problems that you don't expect. Yeah, I'm still kind of in the thick of it. I'm, I'm processing and it is really nice just to like sort of sit back into Bergman's world for a little bit yeah you know that that's the biggest thing uh felicia is i'm i'm so sick of talking about my own movie you know what i mean like i can't wait to talk about some other people's movies uh, (laughs) for a little bit (laughs) well i'm then i'm glad to you know take up an hour or two of your time to do so speaking of 
you were pretty excited to pick wild strawberries and it had been a one that I hadn't seen in a very, very long time. I don't know if you remember the first time you watched this film or... Oh, I absolutely remember. So I uh, I was an actor all as a kid. And between my junior and senior year of high school, I went to the NYU Tisch Summer High program wow. uh, where I like I went up to New York and lived in the NYU dorms for like two months and then studied at the Lee Strasberg Institute for acting over that summer. The scene study teacher we had was this uh, a teacher named Jeffrey Horn, who probably a lot of people who have gone to Strasbourg have had. You might know hmm. him because he plays the guy with old balls in Big Daddy. Do you remember? In oh, Big my God. Do you remember <laughs> yes. in, in Big Daddy? He's like, wow, his old balls. That's Jeffrey yeah. Horn. And, you know, I was 16 years old. And here's this, you know, like, quote, you know, master mm-hmm. acting teacher uh talking about the movies that he loves and he was talking about bergman i'd never seen a bergman film before i'd, I'd heard of bergman i was like really into sort of like psychedelic culture or whatever so i like remember hearing stories about people in the 60s like tripping on acid and watching bergman films but i never had sat down to watch them and he said his favorite was wild strawberries so as soon as i got home from that summer i i watched it and mm-hmm. um i watched it with my parents and my parents, despite, you know, they're kind of, they're like down to go on the journey. They also yeah. like, you know, and even though they were alive when this, well, no, they actually, they were, ju- they were born the year this film came out. Um, oh, wow. They, they watched it and but were both like, uh, they're just like, nah, it's old. You know, like they yeah. like the, the sort <laughs> of like, like some of the clunky editing and like mm-hmm. the rear projection on the car. They just like couldn't buy it. So they just like weren't down for the ride. And so that kind of maybe colored some of my first impression of it. But I do remember being quite, you know, I, I was really taken by the like plot device of disappearing into your memories and memories becoming mm-hmm. this like uh, this sort of transient barrier that you could step in of and out of. Um, and I remember that being quite moving. And it's a movie that I continue to come back to over and over again. I've watched it more than any other Bergman film, probably seen it, seen it like six or seven times now. And it's really grown to become uh, one of my favorites. And I'm always surprised to hear other people who are Bergman fans that don't like it because I've come across a lot of people who are sort of like, oh, really? Yeah, I, I feel like a lot of people will lean into like, you know, everyone loves Persona, but like people don't want to talk about it because it's like too film bro So they'll pick, they'll pick yeah. like, they'll pick like Cries and Whispers, they'll pick Fanny and Alexander, they'll pick, uh, or if they're feeling edgy, like Virgin Spring, but yeah. <laughs> Wild Strawberries, it's because it's so tender and because it follows this uh-huh. old man and it's this eulogy to old age, I feel like it kind of gets a, a little bit sidetracked as far as like, at least with people like of our generation. I don't hear it yeah. often being cited as their favorite, but I don't know. I guess I'm just a hipster like that. <laughs> no, I I mean, now that you say it, I also feel that too. It's weird because he has such an insane filmography, like a huge body of Wild. work. And when you think about it, like I've seen almost all of them now, but there's still little stragglers in between. And I'm like, okay, I, I want to finish it, but it's still a task. This is not <laughs> one that you hear as the top favorite. And I, I think it's also, it's like one of his most known ones. So no one ever picks something like you said, like Persona, or they don't pick the Seventh Seal as their favorite ones because that's right, the obvious right. ones to pick. Yeah, yeah. I like how you said <laughs> they don't say Persona, so they say Cries and Whispers because I was like, that's my favorite one. <laughs> <laughs> I know you don't mean it that way, but I was just like, yeah, that's very much me. Oh, no, uh, I do. I'm calling you out, Felicia. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but Wild Strawberries, it's one of those... I mean, you said you watched it young. I would have not watched it as young as that, but I would have been like a late teenager. I liked it. And each time I watch it, it has a greater effect on me, which I'm sure we'll talk about just kind of getting older. We're obviously not the same age as this character. We eventually, hopefully, (laughs) will be at some point. Yeah. But his films, I find, as you watch them through the ages and the decades of your life, they mean something different to you. Yeah. So if you're ready... I guess we should just get into the film itself. Let's do it. You were saying, you know, it's it's told through kind of like a dreamlike state. You get kind of vignettes of him reminiscing about his youth. And once we get the first one, you're like, is this going to be the whole film? How is he going to tackle going in and out of the dreams? And the first one, you know, is him. I think it's probably the most 
artsy like where it's just him kind of alone walking on that street and um he sees that man who's like a faceless man he decomposes and then you know he's in the coffin and so on how do you feel about just one a film that's sort of told through dreamlike vignettes and him just reminiscing about his youth and can we believe him as a narrator i know that's a lot of questions well the first thought that came into my mind and i kind of love the question is because if someone came up to me and like pitched that film to me i would be like Mm -hmm. "Mm -hmm. yeah Yeah. good luck with that (laughs) because honestly it sounds horrible um yeah (laughs) uh i think i think that films based around dreams are a terrible idea um (laughs) in Uh general uh and that's kind of what makes this film like all the more miraculous and uh well, I think it's partially because he kind of mixes dream and, you know, d- mixes dream and memory and and they and mm-hmm. there's specific dream points, specific memory points and then of course the one sort of like interrogation uh, part where like memory yeah. and dream collide. So I think that that's really interesting and he does it really really intelligently as far as like building it into the plot and he's also very specific in how the dreams are illustrating a different aspect of his psyche you know he's he's very like psychologically focused mm-hmm. on the script and then i think the biggest thing that helps this movie and is actually brilliant and if someone did pitch this to me i'd be like oh that's interesting is by taking this whole dream premise and then putting it into a road movie which gives the, yeah. the plot this constant forward momentum because i think that's the real problem with dreams is that like they don't go anywhere you know they don't mm-hmm. actually like really lead to anything unless you have a character who's motivated by some external force or is being literally driven across the country and is forced to deal with like changing circumstances yeah it's exactly that because if he were to stay in that original room where he's kind of you know getting ready to go to the celebration Ugh. Maybe in the hands of Bergman, it would have worked. In the hands of many others, it probably would not have worked. You need to have, you know, characters that you want to follow in the one static space, like a persona. Yeah. It also helps that he is very succinct. As much as, like, this is loaded, this is like a 90-minute movie. To have all that in 90 minutes. Yeah, yeah. Another 90-minute Bergman banger. Like, he just... (laughs) Exactly. He really knows how to do both. But this is a film about reflection. We both get him reflecting about his life. We also get a lot of actual reflections, a lot of mirrors. He's looking at mirrors a lot. People are putting the mirrors up at him. We get mm-hmm. Sarah, his former flame. He tells him to look in the mirror and says, do you see how old you've gotten? You know, look at yourself. And he's forced to face all these, you know, realities. And if you're seeing this for the first time, you're like, why is everyone kind of being really harsh and mean to him? What is is that pent up kind of anger that's how i felt until you kind of get it going along not that he's a bad guy but you can see personality that comes out through these people through their stories of him and specifically the women in his life we have four women essentially they're well five his mother too we've got the two sarahs played by bb anderson both of them. So his, his former flame and the Sarah, who's the hitchhiker. We've got Marianne, who's his daughter-in-law. His mother shows up at some point. And then his former wife, who is now deceased. And we've got a lot of scenes with these women who are talking about this man in very different ways. Because we don't get that much from him, he's reflecting on himself. So he can only, he only sees himself a certain way, right? We see a different version of him through all these women. How do you feel about the, that being presented that way? Yeah, it's an interesting point. Although, you know, don't forget the, oh, simmer, the, sim, the simmering sexual tension with his housekeeper. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So six, I forgot. <laughs> oh, my God. That last line at the end when she's like, I'll leave the door open if you need me. Yeah, I was like, like oh, <laughs> sir. Okay. Okay. <laughs> I see you. Um, yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I think it's a great point. I mean, I think it all... I think it all boils down to like, an, you know, an essential Bergman thesis, uh, uh-huh. you know, his constant sort of examination slash criticism of bourgeoisie and particularly of like, you know, prominent roles in society. These people who get all the accolades, but in his opinion, know nothing of the human soul. And here we uh-huh. have our, our protagonist, you know, he's a this learned doctor, you know, traveling across Sweden to get this great 
uh, you know, honor, like professor emeritus type or not emeritus, uh, you know, professorial mm-hmm. honor. And yet he really knows nothing of the human heart. And I think that I think that because the you know, that that part of him is like, he's emotionally stunted, almost, um, there's a part of him that is emotionally frozen, you know, on his in his summer, his family's like summer archipelago house. Um, mm-hmm. So of course, he's going to treat the women around him less than great because you know he's uh he's he's a boy he and he hasn't really he hasn't really grown up and that's kind of what this journey is is it's forcing him to yeah to look all these people in the face to look himself in the mirror and 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 grow up i think that's a really good point you know there's a reason why he's being drawn back to the the strawberry patch as like his childhood summer home he is emotionally extended and there's no way that you would know that if we don't get the point of views from the women and the way they talk about him. You know, Sarah, who was, they were in love. She eventually married brother. Right. But she's talking about how she wants to love this man, but she, he's not, get, she's not getting anything from him emotionally. You know, he pretends like it's fine if you are with someone else. And obviously it's not because he's hung up on this woman, but he doesn't know how to express it. And the same with, we get a scene later with his, wife who we'd learn has been deceased you know that trial that he's going through essentially and he's being brought to watch this scene that supposedly we find out he's already lived through and was watching so his wife is kind of running around with a man you don't know your automatic assumption is that she's cheating on him she eventually unfortunately is assaulted by this man and when she's talking about it She's talking to the audience, not face on, but she's talking out loud. And she's saying, when I go back and tell him this, he's just going to say, I feel bad for you with no love or actual care. It's more so I feel nothing other than that sucks. And that kind of shifts your thought on him. At least for me, it did. I don't know for you. What did it shift it? What do you mean? What did it shift it to? When you're like, oh, so this, because you, it might just be because when you're hearing this man kind of reminisce about his life, you think, oh, he's an old, sweet man. He's very nice to his daughter-in-law. He seems to be very sweet with everyone. When we get to like the Max von Sydow character and his wife, he's like, you've done so much for this, for us and the people in this town. Everyone's talking about all the great he's done, but like his personal life, not that he was a bad person. He just didn't seem to open up and offer his love to anyone. Yeah. So you're like, what's what was the disconnect there between the people he doesn't really know that well to the people in his actual life? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, it's kind of an essential mystery that lies at the core of the film. And it's a really an essential mystery that lies at the core of Bergman himself. I mean, mm-hmm. the, the film, even though the film follows this man at the end of his life, Bergman wrote it when he was 37, you yeah. know, which is kind of, which is shocking. And his third marriage was falling apart He'd been having an affair with B.B. Anderson since she was 18, and that was falling apart. And he's and he'd already ruined two marriages. He was on like non-speaking terms with his parents. And he just sort of, you know, he kind of like he just was that like misanthropic, mm-hmm. moody, workaholic, you know, artist that people in the 60s, you know, or in the 50s in Europe thought was like really cool. Like he he was living up to that sort of like image. And I think he was even kind of beholden to that archetypal kind of character, you know, to a fault. And so he kind of pours all that into this character of this old man. Um, But I think at the core, like what you're saying, like at the core is Bergman himself. And it's the part of Mm -hmm. him that that is... um, I, I don't say it's like it I, for me it doesn't mean it doesn't mean that I don't want to watch his movies um mm-hmm. knowing that he was a difficult person but I think it's interesting that you know he was grappling with his own failings and shortcomings as a human you know so directly in his art it's interesting it's like this was his own form of therapy like he didn't actually want to go to therapy. So he's like, I'll write about how I know I'm not the best person. I'm not going to change anything about it. But, you know, he was always very self-reflective, even in the later, like the the documentary about him, Bergman's Island, where yeah. he's talking about himself. And he's like, yeah, I know I was like this. It's just, I can't excuse it. it was That was my way of going about life. 
I think it's the same with this character too, where he is realizing, you know, how he affected other people. And we see it very clearly, not only just in the women in his life, but we eventually meet his son because we've been traveling along with him and his daughter-in-law, Marianne. And we're wondering, where is the son with the deal? They seem to have, are they on a break? Are they divorced? Where is he? And then we get like a scene as she's recounting what happened, why they're not really communicating right now. Turns out she's pregnant. He doesn't want to have a child. The reason why is because in his mind, he grew up as an unwanted child from a broken marriage and he doesn't want to pass that along. Marianne says, when I met our protagonist's mom, she's like, this is like the coldness has been passed down from parent to parent to parent. And she's afraid this is going to be passed down. How do you feel about that scene just in general? Because it's it's dark. There's darkness throughout. But I think to me, that's one of the darkest scenes. Just his anger within that scene. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's I think it's absolutely heartbreaking. I think it's so so sad but in such a, like a in such a real way. Mm-hmm. You know that Bergman continually like finds these stories in the mundane fabric of our lives and he does not put any unnecessary violence uh extravagant plot points just to like keep your attention he Uh just he just keeps it so fucking real and that scene is the epitome of that because it it is just so heartbreaking and it's so sad and it's something that it's something that i can relate to i mean absolutely um it's something that i would have said when i was younger before i became a dad you know and i've never even thought about this until like this moment right now I would have said it not because of its reality, but I would have said it because of my own fear of the responsibility mm-hmm. and the responsibility that once one is aware of these habitual patterns that are passed down, once you become aware of it, you you are kind of responsible to do your part to change it. And I think that the really sad thing about the scene is that the son admitting that he is not willing to change it, that he he feels beholden to it. And mm-hmm. in a way, like, it's the thing that he hates about himself, but also kind of like secretly loves because it gives him his identity. And he probably has conflated it with success because that's what yes. his father has. And so all that's really sad. And like all that is just buried in the subtext of this very simple conversation between a husband and wife talking about how they don't want to have a kid. And that is why Bergman is a genius. And mm-hmm. that kind of circles my head back around to something that you said earlier about yeah, you know, Bergman was very self-aware that he was a kind of, you know, that he was kind of a shithead and, you know, he didn't want to go to therapy, but he did want to write about it. The one thing that I do think separates him from a lot of other artists that, you know, exhibit those traits uh-huh. is you know, I do think that I mean, I don't want to say like a total blanket statement of like he never does this, but I think on the whole, he does not glorify or make those parts of himself appear sexy in films. No. Not at all. <laughs> Polar like, opposite of that. Yeah, like you watch his movies and you're like, I don't want to be Ingmar Bergman. I mean, I would love to be as talented as him, but yeah. I don't want to be him. I don't want to be no. dealing with his problems. I don't it doesn't seem cool. I like I guess gold star for that. Yeah. Jeez. I definitely feel that it's it's very much he never glorifies it. I I can't think of a single film where he's like, yeah, you know, it's cool to be this tormented about life and religion. And just like my every thought is, is this real? Is life worth it? (laughs) Because that's that runs throughout every film. And you're like, it's kind of stressful and consuming, although he doesn't make it like overbearing or unbearable, I find. But it is there. And like it's it's there in this film too. You know, we've got Isaac who is grappling with even in his old age, you know, is God real? What was the point of all this? And that's just like a running thing through all of his films. And I could totally understand if that's tiresome to someone. And as someone who doesn't like I'm not a religious person and I don't grapple with those thoughts, but I am so interested by people who are 
And that's why I keep coming back to his films. But, you know, we talked about how he has like a, a huge body of work. He has certain themes that he likes to explore kind of over and over again. He does differently. But if we're talking about him as an artist, how do you feel about an artist who is just like so kind of fixated on something and seems to want to get it out in a certain way? Does it bother you? Do you not care? Oh, no, I love it. I mean, I think that as art, I think as artists, like, you know, a great artist probably has like three things to say. Uh, the rest of us probably have like one thing yeah. to say. The hard thing is figuring that out, like what that thing is. And he's got it. And he knows exactly what he's grappling with. And he doesn't, he doesn't stray. He doesn't get distracted by the, you know, the glitz and glamour along the path. He stays true to his inner truth. And like, that's what makes him great. So mm-hmm. I'm all for it. And, uh, and I love the whole, I, I love his, his whole battle with God and spirituality and Christianity. And of course, you know, for those who don't know, you know, his father was, uh, uh, not not a preacher. What uh, I don't know what the like right word clergyman. Is. Yeah, but but like for but for a, like a Protestant. So he's like some sort of Protestant. He was a father was like a priest oh, okay. or whatever, and he was raised like in an extremely rigorous mm-hmm. religious household uh, where he like every hour of his day was sort of somehow dictated by the religious expectations of his father, and so it left a huge impression on him, and he battled with it for the rest of his life. Um. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's I think it's fantastic. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> same. Uh, no complaints from me here on that. Uh, I could talk, you know, watch Bergman grapple with the fear of Jesus Christ Himself every day of my life. <laughs> like, I don't mind at all. But it's interesting that you say, you know, they're good artists only have a few things to say once they figure it out and they can do it over and over again in different ways. This is a man who I know I keep saying he has a lot of films, but he does, but he also wrote all those movies, how he had the stamina to do that. I will never know. And his films are dialogue heavy. Well, hold on, hold on, hold on. Cause like, that's not even the full picture because Mm. this motherfucker was (laughs) running the Malmo theater and he mm-hmm. was so and he was producing directing and sometimes writing two to three plays a year and then the films would only get made in the summer yeah so this i mean like no wonder you know he wrote this film uh in the hospital uh because he had a ulcer like a stress ulcer yep and it's like That'll no fucking it. wonder you know and, and because the guy he was certainly, I mean, he was certainly uh, driven and compelled and a little insane, you know, to, to uh-huh. pursue this art form in the way that he did. You know, he was kind of constantly like eschewing adulation. You know, he famously like refused to show up to any like award ceremony. He hated to uh-huh. like, he never showed up to like talk to anybody about his movies. He would never go to like universities and talk about them or anything. I think he was deeply afraid of criticism in any way, shape, or form. So, uh, but he he had this internal psychotic drive, you know, to say this to say this shit, and probably also, you know, that just a very pedantic kind of need to prove himself um, over uh-huh. and over and over and over again. Um, so, yeah, I mean, but like, no, thinking about his output because in the context of his theater work is even uh-huh. more. <laughs> like mind-blowing yeah. i'm getting an ulcer just thinking about it <laughs> for real it takes me like to do any sort of creative work is this is my only creative outlook for now and that this took me a long time to even get the nerve up to do it <laughs> <laughs> let alone be writing multiple plays a year let alone within a decade i just came i just came off set two days ago and uh, Felicia and I were joking before we got on the mic. Uh, you know, I'm I'm like, man, I'm so glad it's over. <laughs> you know, yeah. I mean, like it was amazing. I'm so grateful. It was absolutely beautiful. But God, am I tired? The thought if I like, okay, like got to switch to my like theatrical production that like my entire like my you know my my living is based on and my reputation mm-hmm. is based on. And if I fuck this one up, like it's all in the gutter, uh, all over again. You know, that's would be. 
that would be really hard. Yep. <laughs> so you can kind of understand, not excusing, but understand uh, the fact that he might not have been the most personable person <laughs> to yeah. be around. Uh, but speaking of his theater, it does translate to a lot of his films and the blocking, the framing of his films is something that every time I'm watching, I just like as dialogue heavy and as much of a tell type of person he is, the show part is still very relevant. And he's so, we get a lot of famous shots from his films of just the framing and how he places the actors. And we get it a lot in this. We want to talk about, you know, Marianne and Evald when they're out in the rain and they're having that argument and they're kind of standing there uh, looking at each other. And it's just so beautifully framed. There is a scene in this film, though, that always sticks with me visually because there's no actual dialogue. And it's one of the dreams he's having with Sarah. And she hears a baby off in the distance and she's running to go get the baby. And like the score changes right away. The look of the film changes right away. It's all of a sudden, if you were to just see that scene, you would assume we're in a horror film. I love that scene. I, I, you're not, I guess you do remember it. And just like, how do you feel about, I just kind of want to talk about that film because I, or that scene, because I'm kind of gushing of like, that's, it's a very quick, but it's so beautifully done. And oh, so yeah. kind of out of the rest of the film. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's it, the film, this film um, does some great sort of like straddling between like on location filming and then like mm -hmm. clear studio lot. And that's a moment where like you watch, B.B. Anderson run through a real forest and then immediately step on to a studio lot where there's this like perfectly made like craggy tree branch yeah. forming this shadow behind her that sort of like frames her head as she like reaches down and picks up this this baby from the crib and the baby's like clearly not real you know but it's mm -hmm. also like you've kind of even with the change into the studio lot setting you've drifted into sort of an artificial like symbolic world and you kind of just take it for as is and it does it does take on this surreal yeah horror like quality kind of foreshadowing like a lot of stuff that he would do with hour of the wolf like a few mm -hmm. years later Yep. Um, I I love Spooky Bergman. <laughs> Same. So do I. We don't get yeah. it as often. No. But I think he does spooky a little bit better than he does comedy. I do like yeah. some of his comedies, but they're not on my, you know, top 10 list. No. <laughs> Bergman no, no, films. No. Yeah. Before I forget, I do want to talk about, because I had never thought about this until I, I was doing a bit of research on the final scenes. So Isaac lies his head down on the pillow and he's kind of going to sleep, ending his day. I just was like, okay, it's the end of the film. He's going to sleep. You know, I didn't think that deep into it. People think that they've been looking into the pillows. They're like, it's the same pillow that he woke up on. So he was dreaming the whole thing, the whole day he dreamt. I didn't read it that way. Did you see it that way at all? Do you see why they would think that? I don't really. Absolutely not. That's ridiculous. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, it's a, it's literally like a white pillow. I'm like, yeah, I know. And newsflash, like when you're making a movie, like you got to make decisions real fast. And like, they probably just didn't have another pillow like on the line. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, I think people that would think that are reading way too much into very mundane details of a movie. Mm -hmm. And um, no, he def he definitely made the trip to Lund and he's sleeping in a different bed and he's just having one last dream that, you know, and it's a, such a sweet dream and it makes him. Yeah. Truly. <laughs> so I don't like, what would that even add to the movie? I don't know. They're like, like Oh, it's a, like a huge dream within like several dreams going on into the one dream. And I was what? like, I never thought about that. But then I saw people having like a full on debate on the internet about it. But what does that add? I don't know. I don't know. Sometimes, you you know, when you're like some people you read there, I, I want to support most people's opinions <laughs> on things or at least hear them out. But sometimes I'm like, you know, you could just let it go. Just watch the movie. Just watch <laughs> the movie. I think yeah. like people like if that's what you've latched on to. I'm sorry, <laughs> yeah. you have missed this film. Yeah, you, exactly. you have missed it. And uh, I suggest you go back and watch it again. 
Uh, yeah, that too. Yeah, I was like, there's a, already like, you know, there's a lot going on in this film. I don't think he's hiding anything in that last scene. No, but also, like you said, what would that add if it had if he had been dreaming the whole day? Like, what would be the difference? If who, he yeah, didn't? who gives a shit? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I'm glad you agree. Because people think, well, I'm sure you might get this too. If you have a film podcast, they're like, oh, you must be reading into all the things. I'm like, sometimes I'm just watching movies, you know? No, that's that's the thing. That's what's so like. I hate how like. Why do we have to bake conspiracies into movies? Like, yeah, the 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 movies are saying what they mean to say. There's not hidden messages in everything. Like, save that for fucking QAnon. If you want to fucking <laughs> chase breadcrumbs, like, there's entire like. Just go to fucking Eight Coon and like do that shit somewhere else because movies are meant to be accessible to everyone. And this like Mm -hmm. speaks to the greater problem that like, I also encounter a lot as a film podcast, which is that like, there are no gates. There's no gatekeeping. Like all these things are accessible. The only gates are in your mind of why you would not potentially want to do this. And there are, and the whole notion that there are esoteric occult sort of symbols baked into every piece of art is absolutely laughable to me. Like, yeah. dog, it's hard enough to write like three good sentences in a row, much less three good sentences and like a whole secret sentence underneath them. Like, that's fucking crazy. <laughs> yeah, I I wholeheartedly agree. I never, I don't believe in gatekeeping art for me, the reason why I'm doing this is because I just want to nerd out with people about a movie. Like, that's why I do this. This is why I go, you know, attend a film club where I'm like, I just want to talk to people about movies. If some people want to go super in depth and want to read into, you know, the color grading that happened there, was there a reason? That's up to you. I'm not going to go about my day and do that. But um, sometimes it's just nice to enjoy the art for what it is. And trust me, a lot of the time, these filmmakers, artists are not thinking that deeply. They're like, we just had this that day. (laughs) Yeah, dude. Yeah. You are just doing whatever you can to just get the fucker done. Like, (laughs) yeah, trust me. (laughs) Um, Well, and I'm sure Bergman was also like, hey, I need to get home for dinner. So, uh I'm not sure he ate dinner. I think he was mostly like, (laughs) I need to get home because I've got theater rehearsal at five. And uh, yeah, what a life. My God. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, I do just want to add this little like personal thing, which is that. Yeah. So he, so in this film, uh, Isak drives from his home in Stockholm Mm -hmm. and he drives down to Lund. And um, I think it was about seven or eight years ago. My wife and I, we have my wife and I have a childhood friend of ours who has immigrated to Sweden and lives there now. And oh, wow. about like seven years ago, we went to Sweden, and she was dating this guy at the time. And we were there. We were not there in the summer. We were there in the winter. Um, but we drove from their house in in Stockholm to his parents' house in Helsingborg, uh, which mm-hmm. is very very close to Lund. And so we drove this exact highway that. Uh, they oh, drive wow. in the movie, and it like it was funny. It was like so you know how the middle, like kind of middle part of the movie, they they drive by that giant lake. Um, mm-hmm. uh, they have lunch uh, at the lake where the two like suitors are start arguing about God. Yeah, yeah. So that's uh, this. There's these two giant kind of Great Lakes in the middle of Sweden, and that's a uh, Lake uh, Vettern. Um, okay. any, any Swedes listening can correct my pronunciation. Uh, uh, <laughs> And so as we were driving by that lake, I like, I suddenly like, poo, like had the, those scenes uh, hit my brain. And I real I looked at the road we were on and then I looked up wild strawberries. I was like, where was he driving to again? And, and then I traced his road and I was like, oh my God, we're, oh, driving, wow. we're driving the road. Um, and, uh, you know, Sweden is huge. It's so much mm-hmm. bigger than you would think. It's like, it, it like stretches from like Florida to Maine. And this, oh, this, wow. this drive from Stockholm to Lund, it's like eight hours. And it's over just like okay. a, tiny, a tiny part of southern Sweden. But it'd be the equivalent of like driving from my house in Georgia like up to Washington, D.C. 
Yeah. Um, anyway, uh, yeah, I, I've I have driven this road uh, that that he that's drives, amazing, and uh, yeah, it was dope. I'm jealous. Sorry, in the background, just looking at the size of Sweden on the map, and I was like, oh yeah, I guess I didn't realize how big it was. It's I giant. still haven't been to that part of Europe, and that's always been a dream of mine to go over there and just kind of do those parts of it's Europe. So cool. But I definitely did not realize it was that big. <laughs> All of Scandinavia is so awesome. I have like nor- a lot of Norwegian blood in me, and I think that like oh, yeah. it starts it starts to boil like when I'm in that part of the yeah. world. <laughs> uh, my wife, my wife, whose 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 family is Indian, like loves to tease mm-hmm. me because I get like extra white when I'm. <laughs> <laughs> I'm up there. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, the, hey. I'm also very I'm also very tall. You know, I'm like 6'4 and everyone there is really tall and the it, Felicia this might not this night might not make total sense to you but the urinals are extra tall in Are they? <laughs> so and I it's cuz I'm ha- listen this is maybe TMI for the podcast but like you know I'm always yeah. having to like aim down I'm having like, or like yeah. I'll have to squat down. You know the urinals <laughs> are not built for me even in America but in Sweden the urinals are, are perfect. <laughs> there you go. I didn't realize the, the population was taller there. But now that I'm thinking of all like the Swedish actors, I'm like, that makes sense. They oh, all yeah. look very tall. <laughs> Max Van Sydow is super tall. Yeah. Uh, Gunnar Bjornström is mm-hmm. just tall. Yeah. I wonder if how tall Bergman was. He's probably just like tall for North America, maybe short for Sweden. Yeah. <laughs> maybe maybe he's deceiving he's deceptively tall because he's always sitting in every photo yeah that's true he's <laughs> <laughs> always like sitting he's and just lounging <laughs> <laughs> now i got to google the height um but is there are there any i know this is a, a big film but are there any specific parts that we haven't covered that you would like to chat about um well i think the the only thing is is just like the outsized impact of the lead actor uh, Victor yeah. Schostrom. Um, and, you know, this guy was an absolute legend. I mean, mm-hmm. I was like looking up his filmography today. He started making movies. He directed his first film in 1912. That's two wow. years. That's that's two years before Chaplin even appeared in a movie. So that's, that's how far back in the silent era he went. And, you know, he was like the great silent auteur of sweden mm-hmm. and he came to america he directed a bunch of movies in america he struggled with the transition to talkies so he went back to sweden uh, he was you know director actor but he had basically he had been retired and was serving as sort of like a overseeing director of the swedish film institute mm-hmm. uh, and a big he was a he was a he was critical in helping bergman get his foot in the door um, because Bergman's first film, uh, Crisis, was kind of a flop, and he's the one who like vouched yeah. for him. And so, uh, and, and you know, and this was his last performance, and it was the last time he had acted in in years. And I think it's so it's hard to kind of account for the relationship that Swedish audiences would have had with him. You know, having mm-hmm. grown up with him. You know, like I was reading something today that he was once upon a time considered like the most handsome man in Sweden. He was like the oh. Swedish sex idol. And so to see him as this, you know, little old man reflecting on his life and his lost loves and his failures and all these things. And he just he just delivers such an incredible performance. I mean, this movie would be a quarter of what it is, I think, without him. Um, Mm -hmm. It's kind of one of those amazing, like, last gasps of a truly great artist um, who just kind of poured himself into this final role and then he died like a couple of years after it was made and and that's just amazing it is it's a nice it's nice when you get someone like a bergman who understands the impact of an artist and is able to give them that sort of final goodbye to both their audiences because yeah. i recently watched phantom carriage recognized the names but didn't put them together right off the bat and i was like oh my oh, god cool. Like, I can't believe this is the same guy who directed, and he's also he also stars in the Phantom Carriage. Yeah, and you look at like that movie came out nineteen twenty two, nineteen twenty one, and then yeah. you know fast forward, 
just the stark difference there. And it's, it's always insane and really cool to see someone who was just an artist for so long in their life. And this is like a sweet goodbye. Yeah. Uh, it's one of Bergman's sweeter films. You know, he wasn't putting him through the trenches of something like a cries and whispers where they're fully tormented <laughs> the whole time. Yeah. So, yeah. Did you read this little detail that like, uh, I think it might, this might even just be on the Wikipedia page that like in order mm. to convince him to do it, Bergman was like, Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It's real easy. You just like, you just have to like sit in a field and you just remember stuff. It's super easy. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> He's probably like, yeah, okay, fine. <laughs> yeah. But then he got to set and was like, he was like super upset and like it was really hard and like compl- he was complaining about everything and it was like long yeah i mean he's in every fucking scene yeah that's the thing is like i'm not relaxing i'm in almost every scene of this movie yeah. he's in i mean you gotta do what you gotta do sometimes you gotta lie to people sometimes you gotta <laughs> lie to your actors i think i'd say that as someone who hasn't dealt with actors in a while <laughs> but uh no i think that's a great place to bookend our wild strawberries chat but before i fully let you go i do have the final questions that i still do and credits so uh i know i keep repeating myself but bergman has a lot of movies and i don't know if this would be the one you would recommend they start off with uh, if they've never seen a bergman if it is why if not which of his films would you recommend you know i think this might be what i would recommend it was my first Bergman. Mm-hmm. Um, and if if you see something in this movie, then you're going to love what else <laughs> he's got yeah. in store for you. If you don't like this movie, like maybe you're not really ready or, you know, maybe it's just not the time yet. And which yeah. is like total. I say that not as like a not to be condescending because like yeah. sometimes like I, I mean, you know, like sometimes I'm not in the mood for Bergman. Um, so mm-hmm. uh yeah, but I think this is a great I think this is a great starter. Yeah, it's it's weird because when I knew I was gonna do the Bergman one and because he's like top three director for me, I was like, which one would I recommend? And then going back and rewatching all of this stuff, this when I got to Wild Strawberries, I was like, this is the one. I think wow. if I were to recommend one, it would be like it has to be this one because it gives you everything that he has to offer, but isn't like the stark darkness that he can go down that path sometimes and it's not as philosophical it is but it's not like you know seven seal and no. it's not one of his comedies it's not one of his horrors it mixes all of those things in like the perfect blend and i think as you said if you don't like this it's either just not for you or you're maybe not ready and i also say that not in a condescending way it's like sometimes you aren't in the place of your life or frame of mind to watch a certain movie and sometimes you might watch something and not like it and like it at another later day. But I think if you don't like this one, then maybe wait <laughs> and yeah. give it another chance later before you move on. So yeah. Yeah, totally. Totally. Double bill question. So what film are you pairing this with? And give me more than one, but what film are you pairing this with? And what's the the reasoning behind the pairing? Well, you know, like, the first one that I guess the first one that comes to mind is like a more, um, you know, sort of you know reflections on, on on your life kind of kind of vibe. I feel like I could come up with like a sexier answer than a more, but um, I'll mm-hmm. go with a more. I'll go with a more. You know, cute yeah. little cute little old men. <laughs> yeah, I mean, hey, that that was one that I also it came across my radar. Uh, because there's different ways you can go about it. The, for some reason, this one sparked a lot of different ones. So I'll kind of just rapid fire them. And they all kind of right. have the same reasoning. It's like older men now reminiscing about their youth. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Okay, great. Um, I got Broken Flowers, Jarmish film. Oh, okay. You yeah. know, he's going around trying to, this is different. He's trying to find, you know, the woman and the child that he supposedly is a father of, but he's going back through and visiting all of his older lovers. So we've got that. We got Tokyo Story, who oh, yeah. it's a little different. You know, we got the older couple who are visiting, you know, their kids and or their son, I believe. 
Yeah. And they're just reminiscing there. The other one, which is a sweeter one, Cinema Paradiso. I thought that would be a nice one. Different way of reminiscing about your life. But uh, just kind of the snapshots of youth and what made you the person you are today. And the last one, which is the first time I'm able to actually bring this film up in a pairing, which is wild because it's my all-time favorite, but it's The Swimmer. Frank Perry film. And this is a man, I don't want to give too much away, but he is in a way reminiscing about a past life that seems to have slipped away. That's all I can say without spoiling it. Mm. So if you want to watch older men who cannot communicate, (laughs) but want to think about their youth and holding on, sure. We've got all those. Yeah. Maybe you could also watch Up. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, why not? Uh, up yeah. and Wild Strawberries, Double Bill. <laughs> up and Wild Strawberries. Hey, sign me I would up. go see it. Yeah. <laughs> I, w- I would be there front row. Let's go. <laughs> um, but yeah, I'd sure Bergman would love that. Yeah. Compared to the Pixar movie. Maybe, yeah. who knows? Maybe he'd be a huge fan. Um, <laughs> but Aaron. Thank you so much for tackling Wild Strawberries with me. I'm, I was so happy to rewatch it because uh, it had a much greater effect on me this time around. So I'm really happy to have rewatched it, to talk to you about it. So thank yeah. you. Yeah. Thank you for having me on. Oh, the most obvious pairing of all, Big Daddy. Uh, oh, yeah. You know, <laughs> shout out Jeffrey Horn and his old balls. Um, yeah. yeah, no, thank you so much for having me on. And honestly, thank you, Jeffrey Horn, for recommending this movie yeah. to me when I was 16 years old. Um, there you go. Yeah. See? Callback. <laughs> Seeing Faces in Movies is an official podcast of the Royal Film Club. It's hosted and edited by Felicia Maroney with intro music by Lamar Walker. If you like what you heard, let us know at seeingfacesandmovies.com or send us an email at seeingfacesandmovies at gmail.com. And while you're at it, please subscribe and rate the show wherever you listen to your podcast. And stay tuned for our next episode on Winter Light.